are you just kind of born with that spark in you that makes you want to just go, 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 go? Like, is that a genetic thing or is that something you're taught when you grow up? Like, no, we're, you know, hard work is, is necessary. And, you know, now when I'm like developing an artist, the biggest thing I say is don't send me a record that you're lying on. Hmm. I don't want to hear it. Find a way to like really dig deep inside and, and be vulnerable and talk about the things that you might not be comfortable talking about and like be as honest as you possibly can. Cause I guarantee you there's a lot of people who that'll resonate with. Train your ear, mix a lot, write a lot. Every single day, try to do something creative. All right, on this week's episode of Airwave, I interview DJ Swivel, who's best known for his work with the Chainsmokers, BTS, Beyonce, Kanye West, and many more. He has a very impressive resume of his mix downs, his engineering work. He's also known as a producer who's not afraid to swap in a kick or add creative flair to his productions to bring them to the next level. And we talk about his new plugins, his approach to workflow, dealing with big egos, big talent, what it's like out there as a professional mixer and producer, and much more. So you're going to like this one. You're listening to Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more. I always fantasize about having like a, a studio in a lodge somewhere. Like I grew up in a log cabin in Vermont, the cliche oh. image. Of oh, Vermont. wow. Okay. And I had like turned the basement into a studio when I was 12. But I think um, who just, uh, was it last year, two years ago, um, Emily Warren bought a, she was telling me she got a house in, was it Montana or Wyoming or somewhere like that? Wow. Like in the middle of nowhere, beautiful home. And she like does like writing camps and stuff out of it, and it's like. And then my friends, um, my friend Bozzy and and his uh, my good friend Kevin, his producer, they last year they went to Vancouver and got a house like kind of up in the mountains on the facing the Pacific Ocean, like beautiful, like the most gorgeous mansion you've ever seen. And they just like they just travel, set up a rig. They have like stuff that they'll bring with them, and. They record out of just random houses now. Like wow. the, he has his spot. Just Airbnb his, it? Yeah, they just Airbnb like sick houses and go. It, it It's, to be honest, it's cheaper than renting a studio. And it's just like a different experience. Like it, you know, I don't know if you ever do that when you're like writing. I, I You have a kid, so it's probably a lot harder to go away and do like a writing trip for two weeks or something, right? It's tough. I, when the clock is ticking and there's, like I sometimes when I do Australia tours, yeah, I'll run a place in Sydney, but it's so expensive. By the time you add up and I, for what you get done, yeah, uh, it's hard to justify it where I could just do it at the hotel. But you, or, yeah, but, well, that's true. Um, if you're mostly in the box, that's like very easy to do, right? Right. Um, right. But yeah, I don't know. Like with Bozzy in particular, he likes new environments to feel creative. And so it's almost a necessity. But I know when I was back in New York, studios were charging, some studios were charging $2,700 a day. Wow. So do two weeks there, like that's insane. Whereas you can rent 
a giant mansion that's not a studio for, depending on where you are, it could be like $5,000 for the month or $10,000 for the month, but that's a whole month of time. And then you just bring your mics and bring your your speakers and stuff, ship that stuff out. And it's like a whole niche, work, yeah, like just Airbnb's that cater to that. And, yeah. and kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say who started that, but um, years ago when I was working with Beyonce, uh, Kanye and Jay were doing Watch the Throne, and this was sort of the first time I experienced like a major artist working with a major artist who did not want to be in a studio, and so we went to uh, Australia and just rented this like crazy house uh, in um, what neighborhood was it? Uh, it was in Sydney, um, one of the nicer areas in Sydney. Cherry, Cherry. Uh, I'll figure it out. But um, rented this like massive house and just set up like living room was Jay and Kanye. We had the theater upstairs for B and I and it was the first time nobody told me. I just showed up and they're like, yeah, you're going you're gonna to just record in the house. I was like, oh, great. Well, we didn't ship any gear out. Thanks for letting me know. So we had to like rent some gear there and then, but it, it worked out great because everyone got to wake up. They had a you know, food was always being prepared and they were inviting people all, all around. It just made like for a really interesting environment because you have, this is a big house. So you have all these different rooms and all these different creatives in, in different rooms. And yeah. Do you do just, anything to the rooms to, I mean, no. you don't have time for a treatment, but do you just do it where there's a nice couch or something soft? Uh, no, like, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the theater was, an, it was a movie theater. So it was like kind of, already treated yeah kind of sort of like it wasn't so bad um and then you know you get like a reflection filter one of the you know things to just wrap around the mic just little things like that um but yeah it wasn't so bad and and usually like the living room where where jay and kanye were working was just like a big open living room it wasn't like too echoey though you know there's curtains on all the walls like it was a nice nice space they didn't they didn't do much treatment but it it just felt like a natural sounding room. And so, and especially if you're close mic'd, you're rapping, it's not gonna sound, it's not gonna sound crazy. You know, if you got the mic right in front of your face, you're getting a pretty direct signal. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean that, that entire album. And then they rented like the Mercer Hotel. They recorded half of it at the Mercer Hotel in New York, just in a hotel room. Wow. So. Makes you rethink the assumptions you have about gear and placement and, and like old tropes. I've, I mean, to be honest, like I'm like, I'm the anti-engineer in a way because I like hate gear. It's not that I hate gear. I just don't care. I just really don't care. Like, oh, this new preamp is amazing. Like, I really don't care. Um, to me, it's always like about just being creative and like I can make something where if I have like less gear, I'll still be able to make a good song just because I have the experience and I know what it takes to make a good song and I know what sounds good and I'm using my ears. So I always like joke, like I'm, I'm not a gearhead, I'm an earhead. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I don't think any of that stuff really matters anymore. It's funny, like I'll go talk at schools and um every student wants to know like, well, what gear did you use for this? I'm like, honestly, it doesn't matter. Like I could do it with a hundred different, like what reverb did you use on that vocal? Doesn't matter. I'll like, like I use this, but honestly, if you give me this, I'd, you'd still like the vocal the same way. So I'm not really 
I mean, there's things that I like and, and habits that I've formed, but outside of that, like if that stuff disappeared, I'd be able to replace it pretty easily. Yeah. You know, people get so. zoomed in so far into that. It's like they're polishing the atoms in terms of comparing preamps to spend more time turning it into a hobby, yeah. so turning a profession into a hobby somehow. Yeah. yeah. But at the end of the day, did that preamp ever write you a hit record? No. Of course not. No. So that's kind of, that's always been my approach and philosophy. And quite frankly, it's great because gear can be expensive. And <laughs> I'm not like, I remember, uh, um, actually like back at the, like Jeremy and Rob, like back in the days, like they would get a new preamp every month and a new mic every month because, oh, this one isn't cutting it. This one isn't cutting it. Like for some reason it's, it, we're not getting the same result that this artist over here is getting. And it's like, well, it's not necessarily the mic always. It's, you know, maybe the song isn't as, as dope or, Maybe it didn't have the right promotion or whatever. So you can't always attribute chart success to gear. Like that seems like just one component, just asinine, yeah. to be honest. Um, so I, yeah, I, I've never, I've never really had that approach. And, and mostly that's because, you know, I, I was always in the box. And so I had, you had to be resourceful kind of. I think it's funny right. with that with that 737 the Avalon UAD one where they say it's radio ready like it's a preamp and an EQ and a compressor like yeah. why is, is it going to make your song radio yeah, ready like going to get you on the radio but I get it now that I'm like selling plugins like there are certain things that customers want to see and they want to hear it and so just because in reality it doesn't actually matter uh there is something to say about the marketing and promotion of it. You still have to sell a product. So I understand now being on the other side of it, you do have to tell a story. So like, it's like when you go to a nice restaurant and you know, they list every ingredient in that dish. It's like, you know, age sea, 500,000 year old sea salt. And it's like, Oh, so just salt. Got it. Right. Here's the purveyor. Here's yeah. the artisan salt monger. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, you, we've all been to those restaurants where it's like, oh, you know, like Julian horseradish. Like, why does that matter? Okay, so just what what's in the dish? Oh, it's pasta and chicken? Oh, you have some... Like, it just doesn't matter, you know what I'm saying? So, but it sounds a lot nicer. And when you go and you're expecting that experience, you want the waiter or whoever to like sort of you know, and this is, you know, we've foraged these mushrooms in this forest and blah, blah, blah. Like you kind of want that experience, I guess. And so yeah. I think the same for gear, like you want to be told a story and why this is important and, and what's cool about it. I feel like some guys so. get fixated on the mics, the preamps, compressors, a lot of outboard stuff. Whereas I feel like every instrument I've bought has paid for itself and maybe has helped to write a few songs, but yeah. you can go overboard with the instruments. But once you get into the weeds of comparing compressors and it gets out of control. Well, the, the, yeah, the instrument, I, I understand the argument for that because every, cause that is directly impacting your creativity. Right. Cause you might sit down like, I mean, you know, you got to move back there and, uh, I can't see what this keyboard is, it's but a hydrosynth hydrosynth. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. It's like a wavetable synth. Okay. One. But like when you sit down and you start playing that, your brain goes to a certain space, right? And you're going to feel that's going to give you a certain type of creativity. But there's times when you're just going to want to sit at that piano 
or you're going to want to pull up the Voyager or whatever. So um, with instruments, I think there's an argument to be had to have like more keyboards because it's just more avenues for you to feel like sometimes, you know, you just, I don't know if you do this, but I'll just sit at like a keyboard and just go through sounds. And like that first sound that I hear that just gives me an idea, that's what the song ends up becoming oftentimes. So yeah, I don't, I think the instrument, there's a good argument for having a bunch of instruments. Yeah. I always yeah. feel like it either will sound, it'll sound sweet or sour. Where like sometimes I'll be playing the piano and I'm like this I'm just not feeling this today yeah. and it doesn't and I have no explanation for it but just my ears it's just an emotional connection yeah is there's something I find when you find that one that perfect sound it 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 sparks some sort of emotional reaction to it immediately and then you're like oh now I have my idea like that to me is like what I guess like creativity is. is like as soon as like you feel an emotional connection to something like oh now I feel creative like but what actually changed in the last 30 seconds between finding that sound and not having that sound like it's, it's really the same delicate person right or if the instrument's a little out of tune that can totally mess with your whole flow if it's just yeah, slightly like, out of tune or sometimes that's a good thing that, that could be a great thing yeah. you know no, well now like with certain plugins and things like people want to uh, make it sound detuned and make it sound off, especially yeah. like hip hop now. Like, there's no hip hop session that I uh, do or mix where uh, like retro color is not on something. Right. You amazing. know, it's like become the let's like let's mess this sound up uh, and make it sound you know old or vintage or weird or broken. And I know so. you mentioned on some podcasts that uh, like Emily Warren was recording with her iPhone and messing around with like using lo-fi mics a little bit. Did I mention that? Yeah, yeah, like an old podcast with Isotope, I think. That was definitely on the Memories album for Chainsmokers. Yeah. She was a part of a lot of those records. And yeah, I mean... Did it end up being a usable take or did you have to like treat that a lot or did you just keep no, it as demo? I use I use like all sorts of different sounds and, and um, trying to think like, I remember Drew bought... What's that teenage instrument? Um, the OP1. The OP1 yeah. thing. And he was like, and we did a session with, uh, is it Jonesy or Jonesy, Jonesy from Ziggurat? Ziggurat, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. He came in and, and we were messing with that. That was the day he got it. And we actually just played some sort of sound through the speakers, but recorded it on like the sh little shitty mic. It's like kind of like an iPhone microphone on the OP1 and then put that in and mess with it and like that became like a sound yeah. so i mean why not like yeah you know there's there's no rules there's no i've seen um, guys running uh running their samples through like tascam porta studios now doing that cassette thing where they get yeah. that low vibe they run it through the little tape heads and it probably has to fit the vibe of the song obviously and serve the song but yeah but i wanted to try that you know there's i just saw um podcasts where Phineas it might have been Pensada's place or something but Phineas was uh, uh, Billy Eilish's yeah. brother producer down the street it, almost he's that, really close they're like down the hill oh amazing yeah um, but he was talking about um, you know w one of the sounds in uh, was a bad guy was just they were in Australia I think if I'm butchering this, I, I might get it wrong, but they were in Australia. And I guess when you're at a, at a crosswalk, when you hit the button, every crosswalk in Australia has like a hearing impaired or a visually impaired thing. So if you're blind, like you can hear, there's a certain like cadence 
and rhythm to like how it ticks. And he's like, oh, sick, that's a dope hi-hat. And he recorded it on his iPhone. And then that became the hi-hat in, I think it was Bad Guy. I, I might be wrong. Yeah. I think it was Bad Guy. And there's like this weird, like, it's clearly not a hi-hat, but it acts like a hi-hat. And that was off an iPhone. Or maybe maybe he had a one of these like little recorder guys, but um, yeah, I mean, there's sounds everywhere. These so. are crazy. Even the speaker on this, I have never played back stuff without headphones plugged in, and I headphones are unplugged, and it sounds like this walkie-talkie in Star Wars or something. It has this super has crisp, great. amazing sound. Yeah, that's why I'm, you know, when people going back to the gear thing, when when producers or engineers or students or whoever are talking about gear, I'm just like. There's creativity everywhere. You can find a sound. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, it just has to be interesting. If you get that emotional reaction from it, then that's the thing that's going to help you write a better song. Are there ways that you treat lo-fi sounds to kind of bring out the harmonics? Like, do you throw OTT on stuff? or No. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I do all sorts of different things like in my mixing process. Um, but I wouldn't say there's like a rhyme or reason to it. It's just kind of what I, f I, I really do mix and produce with emotion at the forefront. So I kind of just, every song is a little bit different. I do have certain chains that I are common, like on pop vocals. Like I have a, I have two different options of chains that I will like go to. Uh, and when I receive a vocal, I'll, I'll start by putting it on both and just seeing like, or any, did any of them do something that got it close? And usually one of the two does. And then I just delete the other track and then I just, and then I'll start tweaking and like dialing that other, other one in. But that is based off like a mixed template that I've built that it just allows for, for a quicker workflow. Cause the last thing I want to do when I'm trying to be creative is like fiddle with gear. Like I, I really, I think there's something to say about just workflow and, and habit and not just tinkering. Yeah, like when you get into tinker mode, I feel like for the beginning part of it, it it's helpful, and then and then the returns like significantly diminish after a few minutes. Like I really want to find a sound and move on, and like try to complete a song because otherwise you can tinker forever. I'm sure you. Yeah, we've all done it. Like I'm sure. Like with synth patch creation, it's like that where you, it'll sound amazing, and I have to save it at that point where. Because it'll diverge into something and mutate into something, and then and you fall lose apart. it. Yeah, yeah, and then the, the emotion's gone, and and the idea is gone, and, and whatnot. So, but as it pertains to like lo-fi sounds, going back to the the first question, um, yeah, not really. Like I think on that snare, we just we we cut off the tail, or on the the poop snare, uh, we uh, cut off the tail, uh, did some some uh, envelope shaping on the attack. Uh, and probably like filtered out some, some low end, um, maybe filtered out some high end also, uh, and then put like a big reverb on it and became just like a echoey kind of snare sound. And it was layered with another snare clap or snap or something like that, but it became part of the layer and, and part of the, the fabric of, of, um, it was the intro song on, on that memories album. Yeah. Yeah. And so you built your own sample one. packs too as well, right? Yeah, I just released my second one. Um, so I did one for Splice like two, maybe two years ago. Uh, and then I just released a second one to as I dropped the plugin. Um, and it was sort of 
part of it was as a way to just ha have two products, like something, two things in the marketplace, and also another way to show off what the plugin was capable of. Uh, and so it's a lot of like drum sounds that, you know, I've, uh, I've, I've found along the way or created or, you know, and everything I, I get, if, whether it's a, you know, a producer sends me a mix session, I might hear a sound, but then by the time I mix it and adjust it, it's like, it's changed. Right. And so like that might become a sound in a pack. Um, and, uh, and then like there was a, there's a bunch of vocal chops and like the sauce is really, when I designed it, um, it was designed to be a one plug-in vocal chop solution. So reverb, delay, um, stereo imaging, distortion, pitch and format shifting, all these different things. Cause when I was working with the Chainsmokers and then, uh, BTS, uh, and really a lot of artists like now, I don't know how often you're, you're using like vocal chops in, in your, um, and by the way, I use, use vocal chop quite broadly because there might be certain sounds, especially in hip hop records where you just hear this like one vocal that's like a background thing. It's like not a, drone. a chop. Yeah. It's just like a, and it's in the back, but it's usually just a simple vocal sound that's then pitched up, uh, formant shifted, spread, distorted ton of reverb and it just becomes this like ambient sound in the background. And so the sauce was designed to be a one-stop shop for that. And, um, and so in the sample pack, I have like, for example, there's like a hundred vocal melodies that are, you know, half bar or a quarter note or a, maybe a full bar. And then I have, uh, different processes, uh, where they're already like format shifted and shaped and, and tweaked using the sauce. And so it was a good, good way to like show off what the cap the product is capable of and also just give producers like a cool sample pack that, you know. Were there samples um, you think were missing that like, that are, are, you know, there's so many things that Splice covers really well, but were there samples like certain snares or shaker loops when you make your packs that you're thinking, this mm, is what's missing, what I'm missing from the marketplace? No, I don't think that at all because I think there's nothing that's ever really missing in a way. It's just like everybody has the sounds on Splice. I hear the same loops all the time. I've used loops that I've heard other people use. Like it becomes uh, just a matter of differentiation. So I think even though my pack and somebody else's pack might have the same stuff, like my pack has, it's like over a thousand sounds, a new one, it's called Saucy Samples. 300 of them are like vocal chops. Probably uh, 600 of them are uh, drum samples like kicks and snares and toms and fills and stuff. Uh, and then there's like maybe 50 loops or something like that. And, um, there's probably other packs that have are made up in a very similar way, have vocal chops, have loops, have, have drums, but they're different. And so what's the thing that's going to make you feel creative. And so this is just like the stuff that I like and was melodically interesting to me. I was like, Oh, that's cool. Let's throw that in. Yeah. I think so, it's, it's so interesting now with what Splice is doing with Splice Exchange and doing top-line focused projects where I've had some songs come in that I think are top-lines uh, exclusive and original and they're already on records that are out. Right. Nobody knows that. There's no way to keep track of it. Yeah. So what do you think about that? Oh, man, I'm dealing with that right now. I have an, an artist that I'm uh, developing named Aria. He's a rapper. And, um, you know, he started like 
many rappers finding beats online. And, you know, we, the first record that, that we put out was a record called Blue Chanel. And then we found out later that there was another artist that had the same beat. And we were like, how did you get that? <laughs> and they were trying to have our version taken down, but we had an exclusive license. Like we, cause I do things the right way. And like I said, if we're going to put this out, we're not leasing a beat. We're buying a track. We're going to hire a producer and we're going to do a deal and we're going to, um, so this was a, a beat that he found online. And that producer was like, you have the exclusive, but I had leased it out to a few people before that. So I can't promise that it's leased not. it. Yeah. yeah. Leased it. And what does that it's mean? A car like, dealership. Yeah. So, um, like I understand because at that level, um, you want to try to, as a producer, you want to try to maximize how your how much money you can make from it. Cause we all know it's like, it's hard to make it in music, right? It's, it's, it's not the easiest industry. And when you look at the people who are doing really well and making millions of dollars and all this, like it really is like the one tenth of 1% or, or probably even way less than that. Um, so I understand if you're a new producer, you love what you do, you you want to try your best to find a way to make a living off it. And so if leasing it means you can sell that beat five, six times and make five, six times the money, then of course you're going to do that. And also it's harder to get new, uh, you know, unsigned rappers or singers or whoever who... Uh, don't have the, the the financial means to be able to pay you know five grand or ten grand or whatever for a, a track, you know they can they can go in and get their beats online. So I understand the need for it. It just doesn't really, you know. Now I mean, look at Old Town Road. Like he, yeah, thirty bucks. He, thirty right? bucks on Keo, yeah. on yeah. So um, who, now who's to say that somebody else didn't also have that beat at some point, right? Yeah, somebody else's <laughs> right? also like, run. Yeah, there's like, an, exactly. Um, so, you know, it's, just, I guess, part of the game. And, and But yeah, we had we had to deal with it. And and uh, there was some other tracks that, that were out. And uh, and it actually made it difficult because then we made a, a remix. And uh, so I have a platform called Skio Music. And we do like remix contests and, and things like that. And so the stems were available. And so one of the remixes that came in, we ended up putting out and it's actually doing quite well. Uh, it's charting in Europe and, and doing really well. Um, but then what happened is some other producers got the stems from the, the, uh, the contests and they recreated the remix that we put out like the same beat, but like I literally just recreated the beat because it's the main melody sample that was, a, a just a stem and then, like, you know, it's like house drums. Like, it wasn't that hard for them to, to recreate it in, like, a house bass line. And so now we have other producers who are putting it out with their name on it. As an instead, original? As an original. Yeah, of course. And then now it's like a bunch of YouTube copyright. Th and now it's like trying to deal with that and manage that. Uh, so, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, there's a good and bad side to everything, but. I mean, part that's, of it is scary, but I think there's a huge opportunity in that area of, it's like a new world of derivative works where yeah. it's it's scary, but it's also empowering for producers who don't have access to the vocalist. I mean, that's what I like with you, what you're doing with Skio. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's super empowering. Um, I mean, the way that we make music now is totally different. And 
the problem is the industry is not caught up and we have fought really hard with labels to try to get them to understand what we're doing. And Hey, we're actually coming to you. We're not trying to Napster this thing. Like we're coming to you. We want you to work with us, give us your stems, let us put them out so that we can monetize it for you. Um, the whole, part of the point of Skio in the beginning was simplifying the licensing process. So copyright law, it serves its purpose. It does what it's supposed to do. And, and I, I don't think that changing that makes sense because, you know, if you do create something original, you, you should be able to own that work. Um, but the problem is like, how do you define what's original and what's not if you're remixing something or like, like what part of that is original? How do you, how do you mix, break that up? And so, um, we created contracts that, that we felt were fair to all parties. And what we found is that most producers and creators, when they're doing a remix an unauthorized remix, they're not actually really trying to make a ton of money off it or, or any money. If that they're really just trying to show off what they're capable of. They're just trying to get their music out there. And the problem with, you know, you have YouTube and their content ID system and, you know, uh, I'm sure Facebook has their own system and SoundCloud has their own system and all that. They don't, they will just, it's easier for them to program a tool that will just take the music down than it is to, you know, determine whether or not they were allowed to do it. And I mean, that's just like a burden that Google doesn't want. Is there no middle ground? Like is either major label, well, it can auto clear or auto take down, but not much in between. Well, the middle ground in our view, what we're trying to really work towards and, and build towards is getting labels to buy into this idea that we can help you monetize all the remixes that, because keep in mind when, when a new producer remixes something that the label did not, go and, and pay for or, or create, technically the remixer, uh, they can't make any money from it uh, because it's a derivative work, but the label can't really make any money from it either. Sure, they can slap some ads on YouTube, but they can't really make any money from it either because they, are, they don't have a contractual relationship with that producer. And so what Skio does is by downloading the stems, you sign an agreement uh, and it's a fair agreement and makes sure that all the rights are delivered to the right people. And, and you have a contract. You are, if you download stems on Skio, you have a deal with whether it's the artist, the label, whoever is the owner of, of the original work. Um, and so the hope was that we could get labels to buy into this idea that we can find a new way to monetize your content. Cause there's a lot of producers who will pay 50 or a hundred dollars to get stems to that, whatever, Morgan Page song or Chainsmoker song or whatever. Um, and then we could go to YouTube and say, all right, now you have to enforce these agreements. These are legal agreements. You can't just arbitrarily take stuff down because it it's flashed on your content ID. These are licensed. So if we can right. build that into your system so that you know who's licensed what and what is okay, because we know what their YouTube channels are. We know what their SoundCloud channels are. We know where we are, they're allowed to post. So we could just provide that to you and you just whitelist those channels. Very, probably a very easy thing for the, the engineering team at, at YouTube to implement. Um, but that was the hope and, and we've, we've, we've gotten pushback, you know, a lot along the way. 
So, but I think it's like anything, you know, there's pushback with, uh, especially with music, music industry is just slow. They, yeah. they're always slow to catch up. And like when Napster came out, you know, um, sure that, that was stealing, but it really shined a light on what was, what the internet was capable of. And if the industry, if the music industry was smart, they would have embraced it and they would have launched their own version of iTunes. Instead, they waited for Apple to do it. What? 10 years later or whatever it was just bought equity and, 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 uh, and as a result, they lost 30% because Apple had to take their 30% on it, which made sense. They built it. Why didn't, why didn't universal music go and build that system five years before Apple? And what about, like, they had TikTok, all the rights, you know, with these yeah. with new platforms like TikTok, where there's no music takedowns that I know of yet, but you're seeing so much new life into songs through memes, yeah, through I mean, dances. TikTok's an interesting one. I'm still learning about it and figuring it out, but I think probably the labels are looking at it like, let's not get too into the weeds on TikTok because TikTok is breaking our artists for us. And so I don't, like, imagine if they had taken down, imagine if Ron and the team at um, Columbia uh, took down the Old Town Road stuff on TikTok. I mean that we live in a different world. Like, it shows that, the power of the derivative works. Uh, yeah. That. Well, it's. I mean, I, do you do you, consi do you consider? Work? Yeah. Do you? I, I was going to ask you. Do you consider like TikTok things derivative works? Yeah, it's like a social remix. Is it though? Because it's just using the song. It's if just applying video to song. I think you're just yeah, you're, you're merging it, two different medias together into a new work. Yeah, but you're not modifying that work. Right. So I, so I, I think it's a little different and correct me, does TikTok list the song? It's supposed to, but a lot of times it'll default to the person's original sound. So like they should, but I, a lot of them I see like the Roddy, the box track, it's, it'll say their original sound when it should be linked. But I mean, that's, it, they have to fix that. It, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it, but if it's, if it's, uh, attributing the the whoever the song is to that original artist and you're just adding creating a visual media with it you know i mean i think let it let it be what it is which is great promotion like i mean now i don't know are any of the last number ones in the last year not tiktok <laughs> like songs that blew up yeah. off tiktok yeah, like the box blew up and all uh, like all the little Nas X stuff blew up and like, you know, BTS stuff go does well on TikTok. And I mean, you're just seeing all these new artists like break on TikTok. So me as somebody who's trying to put music out, I'm trying to crack that code. Like, well, who are the people on TikTok who matter? Who are those influencers that actually make a difference? That's the, the tough thing. There's, there's some that stand out, but it's kind of just arbitrary. Like somebody what, can blow up overnight. Yeah. And, no it, and, it, and there's no rhyme or reason. It's really about like, well, who created the most interesting video? Like what's the most shareable thing? And that doesn't have to be from some big, uh, uh, creator on TikTok. It can be from anybody. Like if somebody comes up with something really creative, it, it's one of those platforms that anything can go viral. Like it, it's like almost in a way, the last, um, true viral, thing because everything on YouTube that goes viral is not actually gone viral. They hired a company to make it go viral. Yeah. And, 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 and that's actually starting to happen on TikTok too. Like I hear more and more in conversations, whether it's with labels or managers or whoever, 
uh, that, oh, we got to go do a TikTok influencer campaign. Well, all that means is, you know, you're paying somebody to do a video for you, basically, right? What are the, what, on YouTube, what are they doing to make it go viral when they're hiring these agencies? Is it just uh, like SoundCloud uh, repost? They're just, there's, they know who the influence, the, the, the YouTube has like been around a long time now. And so it's a very um, matured ecosystem. And so I think you, you know who the guys are who, or girls or whoever, you know what the channels are that, that matter and create, um, that, that can move a product. And so, um, you know, it could be something as simple as like going to Trap Nation. Make, you know, you got to make sure your song hits Trap Nation. Otherwise, like nobody's going to see it. Um, but then it could be a creator thing. Maybe it's like, you know, I mean, even for launching the sauce, like, you know, I, I want to talk to people with an audience. And, and I mean, it's no different at, at, in theory. It's just it's no different than a podcast or radio interview or anything like that. It's, it's, it's exposing yourself to a larger audience. So, um, yeah, but, but TikTok seems like it hasn't gotten all the way there yet. Like it's, you can still naturally go viral just by having something cool. And it's always fleeting, right? Like these moments of platform arbitrage, they yeah. come and they go. I mean, there was a moment when MySpace had that where, I mean, it helped Calvin Harris establish his career. Yeah. Where it was Oh my God, was I was no on noise. MySpace. Ugh. I have a funny MySpace story. I actually, I actually put Diddy on MySpace. I, wow. I created Diddy's MySpace page for him. Wow. And it's, it's funny. Um, I don't know if I've ever told this story, uh, but my mentor Duro told it one time. Uh, we were, when I say we, I was interning for my mentor Duro in New York, 2006. And um, he was mixing Diddy's Press Play album. I think we mix, he mixed seven songs on it. And so Diddy would come in and I'm like kind of starstruck, whatever, like it's Diddy, like I grew up on Diddy. Um, and so, uh, but I'm in the studio and I'm on my MySpace and he looks over my shoulder and he's like, what's that? I said, oh, you don't know what MySpace is? He's like, no, what is that? It's like, oh, this is like that. This is the, and that was like the first real social media, right? I mean, that was the After first Friendster. one. Yeah, Friendster was Fr small. Friendster was small and it was earlier. You're right. That was around. I never used Friendster though. MySpace was the first one that I think had um, mass appeal. And, uh, and so I said, yeah, this is like, there's like music charts on MySpace. I remember I, I, 2007, I discovered Drake on MySpace because wow. he was the number two artist on the, on the internet in Canada. And it had like country charts, like just in Canada, he was number two. I think Avril Lavigne might've been number one or something like that. Um, and so I showed him what it was and yeah, you put your friends here and you can like post music and you could talk to your fans and it's like a direct way of communicating uh, he's like, that's amazing. I was like, I can make you one, but if I make you one, you have to put me in your top eight. Remember the top <laughs> yeah. eight? And so I made a deal. That was like the first music industry deal I made. I said, I'll, I'll make you one, but I got to be in your top eight. He didn't even know what a top eight was. So he's just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so right then and there in the studio, I made awesome. him, made him his, his, uh, MySpace. Yeah. Wow. Cause I remember made sure that, I was in his top eight. And Facebook was not available if you weren't a student. Facebook was sort of quarantined off and they were building on that growth with college. Yeah. It's crazy. At that time, you're right. Because I remember 
I was on MySpace and I have a twin brother who is in college. I did one year of a music school, graduated, moved straight to New York. I went to Full Sail yeah. um, and moved straight to New York and started working. My brother did a four-year undergrad degree and did a normal thing. And he had the .edu uh, email address for going to the school. Um, and I remember he used to hate on MySpace, like, oh, MySpace looks janky. Like, you got all these, like, sparkly Sparkles. HTML things <laughs> and like, you know, just like people yeah. made their MySpace pages look really ridiculous. Um, it was like almost- It dazzled them. Yeah, remember those like old websites, like the tripod websites? Remember tripod yeah. and- GeoCities. Like GeoCities and all that. And where you could like, it was just simple HTML programming and and what that amounted to was a bunch of really awful like GIFs that would just appear on yeah. everything and, you know- it Slowed everything down, right. Slowed everything down. And so there was something to say about Facebook's like, the uniformity of everyone's profile. And you could see very easily see what you wanted and how to communicate to that person and, and, and whatnot. Um, and yeah, MySpace at that time was like really more like creator driven, I think than Facebook was. And so I remember I couldn't even get a Facebook at this time. Um, or maybe it was just when you could get, when you could actually get a Facebook, like right at the beginning. Um, but at that time, MySpace was, definitely they were the top dog. Facebook was number two, if anything. Um, and so I was uninterested in it because, oh, it's only for people in schools. Then they open it up and obviously the tides, tides turn, but yeah. So and then inevitably to, it's to like, uh, Diddy for getting on social media. Did he invent the remix? <laughs> You're welcome. Did he invent the remix? Uh, he says he did. Uh, <laughs> I have, I have no reason to uh, disagree with him. <laughs> uh, he certainly made because I, you know, I grew up on Biggie and Mace and 112 and like Puff and like the whole bad boy. I remember one of the first, the second concert I ever went to was the bad boy No Way Out tour. In, uh, it was at Skydome in Toronto, which is now, what do they call it? Scotiabank Arena or something. But um, so I grew up on that and he certainly branded the remix. I don't know if he's the first, I mean, because dance music's always been making remixes forever, right? It, it's never like one singular innovator, I feel like, with these things. Like it's, yeah. there's everybody is simultaneously innovating different parts of the planet. Yeah. And they think, everyone thinks they did it first, but, but maybe he did. But, but there's something have. to say about branding it. Like, he, I mean, yeah. he, he's, an he's an incredible marketer. He certainly branded it with, with, his respective genre. He certainly branded it with hip hop. Um, I mean, who was making remixes back in the nineties? Like it was like Puff and I think Jermaine Dupree was doing some like cool remix stuff down in Atlanta. I'm sure there were other people doing things, but like also bad boy in the late nineties, like really took all the oxygen out of the room. Like they were the, um, premier, uh, creative, I mean, label, but I don't know. They, they branded themselves differently. Like, you know, bad boy from 96, basically like the end of Biggie's life to that no way out thing. Like everything was bad boy. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What were, were you listening to a lot of hip hop growing up or were you I, I all the Wu -Tang dance stuff. music? Wu -Tang, yeah. Wu -Tang. yeah. It was all hip hop. And I remember interning for Ultra Records for Patrick Moxie and those wow. oh, I was actually interning for Liquid Todd wow. uh, for a week and I was working in New York I would spend my summers interning for labels and the other room like uh, Gangstar 
They were uh, being managed by Patrick Moxie at the time. Gangstar was managed yeah. by Moxie. Yeah. Wow. So I think they would. I didn't know that. In. It must. I don't know if it was a long term thing or not. But was Premier there too? Uh, I saw he would walk in. I remember meeting them a few times. I remember meeting them. Um, I mean, Gangstar was huge. Yeah. Just incredible. Premier was uh, one of my favorite hip hop producers, but um, never never met him. But yeah. he seems like really dope. I just remember at that time it was hip hop had invaded the, the white suburbs basically everywhere yeah. and even the country suburbs. Yeah. Of. I grew up on the edge of farmland and suburbs and right. I mean, everything just through MTV being such a vehicle at the time was huge. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure like, especially at that time, the, what year would this have been? 2000. Oh, this was late nineties. So yeah. So yeah, at that time, Eminem had already come out and like, I think Eminem was like a culture shift for rap in white America in a way, yeah. not to say that like white people were listening to hip before Eminem, but like he was the thing that, that I think like took it to like truly, truly globally. And like, maybe somebody's going to yell at me for saying that, but um, not that hip hop wasn't global, but like, you know, it, he built an audience that did not exist before who are still listening, who's still listening to hip hop music. And I feel like Post Malone and in, in I mean, some ways. you know what I saw actually this morning, I saw, did you watch the Oscars last night? Yeah. I didn't watch, but Eminem performed, um, I guess what, 15 years after he, he won his Oscar or whatever it was. Um, and you could just see like all the old white people in the crowd were like really digging it. Like they were really <laughs> into it. You saw like the camera pan to the crowd and like, yeah. These like old white guys are like bopping their head crazy. This. And then he got a standing ovation. It was like this big thing. I'm like, that song came out 20 years ago. Like, what wow. are you talking about? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it just goes to show like how much um, sort of weight was behind him and, and what he sort of did. Yeah. He's like literally did kind of what Tiger Woods did for golf. Nobody really, nobody really cared about golf before Tiger Woods started yeah. Well, what do you think? I mean, you've worked with so many of these big names. Are are you seeing a common thread of something they're doing differently beyond just work ethic with Kanye? No, I Diddy? always say it's it's work ethic. Like Kanye works like to an insane like degree, like the way that he and and also he's super creative and he speaks his mind. So there's like something about that honesty, whether you agree with him or not. Um, I think people appreciate honesty and so um you know now when i'm like developing an artist i'm always the biggest thing i say is don't send me a record that you're lying on hmm. i don't want to hear it find a way to like really dig deep inside and and be vulnerable and talk about the things that you might not be comfortable talking about and like be as honest as you possibly can because i guarantee you there's a lot of people who that'll resonate with um so do they lose any of that if they're trying to appeal too broadly to people? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's sort of a, a trade-off. Um, but if you pair that with, with a crazy workout, like Beyonce, no, like nobody works as hard as Beyonce. I'm convinced. Like it's actually insane how much she works. And as big as she, you know, I worked with her from 2010 to 2012. So like two years there. I remember she was about to go on tour uh, no, not go on tour. She was going on vacation and we had like 
six or seven songs that had come in that people had written that she really wanted to record. She loved these songs and wanted to record. So we came in on, she was leaving for vacation on a Sunday. We came in on Friday. Usually our sessions start around noon. Um, so we get in noon on a Friday. So I'm thinking, and I know she's going on vacation in two days and I'm like exhausted at this point from doing like 20 hour days with her every day. Uh, you know, no days off, like 20 days in a row, then one day off. Uh, and so I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm, just need a little break to, to catch my breath. So I'm thinking, all right, we'll work Friday, go home Friday night, two in the morning, three in the morning, uh, come back Saturday, work Saturday, and then Sunday we're off. So it's just two more days. And we stayed in the studio from Friday at noon till Sunday at close to noon, like basically 48 hours straight, no sleep, did not sleep a wink. She did not sleep a wink. How do you know you're not working backwards at that point? Like, do you know, you just do well, it? Well, because we were, we were doing recording sessions. So she recorded six full songs, Wow. lead vocals, comp them, background vocals, stack them. Like the process of recording a song with B would take like a couple hours. She's also so good. It's not, you're not really worrying about is this take good or is it not? They're all great then it becomes like, what's the best of the, of all these great takes, which actually becomes a little difficult. Cause when you're comping a vocal and everything sounds good, uh, it's just a lot harder cause you still want to improve it. You still want to make it the best. So when I'm comping her vocal, I might have six takes to work with and I'm listening word for word, every single one. What is the best you here? What is the best like love he here? And, and, and weaving those things together. And it gets really hard when like, they all sound just incredible. You're like, uh, this one's like maybe a little smoother. So that can take some time. Whereas when you're yeah. working with an artist that, you know, out of the 10 takes that you get, maybe only two of them were that great. And you really got to, it's very quickly to get rid of the six ones that are shit and, and, uh, just, just pick the good ones. So anyway, so she recorded six full songs. I've never done that with any other artists. There's like, you know, and there's no reason that she has to do that. Like, if she waited an extra day to finish the music, is that the worst thing in the world? No, but it's irrelevant because she is so passionate about what she's doing that, no, I'm going to sit in and work for 40 hours and not even really think about it because that's how much I love what I'm doing. Do you think so, that people are wired that way, that they can't turn that off? I think some people are, you know, I don't know. It's like, is it a, when you say wired, is that a nature or nurture argument? Like a personality, yeah. Yeah, but is yeah. that nature versus, or nurture? I feel is like- Is that something you learn as you, I ask myself this all the time and I don't have an, I don't have a good answer. Cause I, I work really hard and, and I know what it takes to succeed. And I'm sure you work very hard too. Like you don't get to, um, a successful place in the music industry without working hard. I mean, I've seen artists become lazy and what happens is the product suffers and they fail. Just, it happens that way. Um, and so I've, I've asked that question a lot. Like, are you just kind of born with that spark in you that makes you want to just go, 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 go? Like, is that a genetic thing or is that something you're taught when you grow up, like, no, we're, you know, hard work is, is necessary and, and, and whatnot. Like, uh, like what made Kobe, Kobe, 
You know, yeah. what made him, he, he wasn't the tallest player. He wasn't, uh, like the most athletic player the way like LeBron is athletic or something like that. But you could just tell in his mentality and how he, how he went about not just playing basketball. You could see it translates right after he, guy won an Oscar. Like, I don't care who you are. You don't become one of the best basketball players of all time and then win an Oscar and pretend there's no correlation between those two things. Like there has to be. Right. And he, I feel like he worked with more intention than people realize because he would review tapes of play. Oh like, my God. One of my favorite shows. And I'm not like, I, I'm a basketball fan, but I'm not like a crazy hardcore fan. I'm like betting games and like whatever. Um, but his show detail is incredible because I've never seen ever in my life the sport of basketball broken down to that degree, right? When you're watching like TNT and you watch like Shaq and, and Charles Barkley and like all these other, you know, Stephen A or whoever talking about the game of basketball, they might like break down a play here. Okay, here's the pick and roll. This does this, blah, blah, blah. But then when you watch like the way that Kobe breaks it down, have you ever seen that show, Detail? No, I've read about it. It sounds amazing. It's like... Yeah. It's amazing if you care about like about it's literally that amount of detail. Um, also has one of the coolest intros of any show. I think the Game of Thrones guys did it. Wow. Um, but uh, but yeah, he will break down a play to such a <laughs> to such a degree that you, you, you like to a layman who doesn't play ball. Uh, you, you're not even fathoming like w w <laughs> how much detail goes into the game. And he's talking about like, see if this guy's foot is three inches this way, then this person can't get around. If you bend your knees like a little bit more, then they have to sit on you when they're posting up. Like it's, it's actually, it's pretty remarkable. And it's one of those shows that I guarantee you every single player in the NBA, pretty much every single player in the NBA can watch that show and learn. Yeah, like that's how how detailed it is. So, um, yeah, f I'm sure that's boring to some people, but to me, it's like it just kind of breaks down the mind of somebody like that, which is the more interesting thing than like how far you're supposed to bend your knees in like a play on basketball. Like for me, like I don't really care, but uh, but watching somebody talk about it with that much passion and intensity and like understanding is 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 amazing. I feel like it's refreshing because yeah. a lot of guys hide their brush strokes and you can't really see, you hear the, the their own synopsis, their own hero story that they've built, but you don't see the detail work and that all that intention they put into the craft. Yeah. Um, so I see this with producers a lot and it's usually like new producers. Um, I share everything. If somebody hears, if I write a song or produce a song and, and I play it for somebody and they're like, oh my God, those drums sound amazing. Like, I'll just be like, oh, I'll give you the drums. Like, I don't care. Because what you do with them is not going to be what I do with them. And like, I, what, what do I need to be protective over here? Like, I share everything I can. I want to share every secret. But I also share the truth, which is like, okay, I used this plugin and I did this, but it's not going to help you for your song because it's a different song and it requires a different thing. So the better piece of advice that I give producers is like, train your ear, mix a lot, write a lot, 
every single day, try to do something creative, something. And ultimately, as you, as you do more, it's like a muscle. You'll, you'll get better at it. And then, remember mixing for me, there was like a day when it clicked. And I don't know what happened, but there was one day that I walked into mixing a song not really knowing what I was doing. And then the next day, for some reason, it just clicked. And I was like, now I understand what's going on. Now I actually understand what the process is, like fundamentally what I'm doing. And that changed everything. And that doesn't mean that that first mix was incredible, but, um, but it gave me a confidence and like an understanding of the process that allowed me to learn so much quicker. Whereas like in the beginning, you feel like you're hitting this brick wall of like, I don't know what to do. Why does your kick sound this way and mine doesn't? And the truth of the matter is, it's just like ear training, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I think that probably is the same for any anything, whether you're a chef or you're a basketball player or you're a painter. Like there's probably one day where it just clicks and now you can you can paint a portrait like perfectly. Whereas like yesterday you had a, crooked ass nose and lines didn't make sense and it looked awkward. Uh, I think there's probably that learning curve in anything. I mean, did you find that you had had that in your, like, as you were growing and making beats, like one day you're just like, oh, I get this now. Now I understand how to put a record together. I, there was one night I was doing a remix in my parents' basement and it was, I was just all up all night doing the song, getting the goosebumps. And that was a tipping point. You just know, you're like, this is it. Yeah. This is it. Like, why could I? I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. I think I was like 16 or something. And yeah. And then from that moment on, I'm sure that wasn't the best song you ever wrote. No. But but that, that, that spark there probably created the momentum for everything else, right? Yeah, because you're chasing that found. feeling as well. Yeah. Or recreating that feeling, recultivating it. Yeah. So... Well, walk me through, like, so what's a typical day for you with, when you're working on these Chainsmokers projects, um, you wake up, do you have a crazy morning routine, do anything crazy? No. Um, and honestly, my, because I, I do wear a lot of hats, like, my career has evolved in, like, sort of an interesting way. Um, I started as an intern, and that was a, there was an obvious morning routine. It was pretty much wake up get dressed as quickly as you can and get to the studio. And I was doing over a hundred hours a week in the studio every week, unpaid, just, just grinding it out. Then when you start becoming a recording engineer, now you're on the artist schedule. So whenever they want you there, I mean, as an intern, you're kind of on artist schedule too, but you're kind of, you show up at the beginning of the day and you leave when the last artist, you, you shut the lights off and you're out. Uh, as a recording engineer, you're on the artist schedule as soon as you become a mixing engineer, you kind of create your own schedule, but ultimately it depends on what you're working on. If you're really busy and you're mixing a lot, then you're pretty much, you know, at that, uh, like working on the Chainsmokers record, this is a few years ago now, um, it was sort of like wake up, have breakfast, uh, talk to the guys, hey, what time do you want to be at the studio? Oh, we'll be there at two o'clock, cool. So I'll get there at 1.30. Um, and then just, all right, what are we working on today? And then it's really more about facilitating that. It, what, and with them, it wasn't always mixing. Like it was, you know, uh, I was doing all the vocal production and, and even like Drew and I would go back and forth on the beats. Like he would, you know, make a track and then 
bring it to me. And what do you think of this? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, this is cool, but I think we can change it. Like this kick drum doesn't sound right. Let's change that. Let's do this. And we do like a little back and forth on it. And then uh, we cut the vocals and then I'd mix. That was sort of the, uh, the process. And that could all happen in one day or uh, it could happen over a span of a month. Look, that's, that's always refreshing to hear because whenever I send stuff off to get mixed, uh, I'm always thinking like, what are they going to do if the side chains aren't perfect or if the samples are bad? There's only so much mixing and mastering to do at that point, but you can have an active role in being like, this is a better kick, this isn't the right key. Yeah, well, I sort of view, my personal opinion is I view the mixing process as the last part of the production process. I don't, I don't separate mixing and production. To me, they are right. one and the same. Um, and so I'll get co-production on songs uh, when I'm getting into that sort of granularity of it. Um, and so at the end of the day, when you're mixing, you kind of just work with what you got. I, I tell, like I normally send artists, here's a template of how I like if you're sending me stems. Now I rarely get, do I get Pro Tools sessions anymore? Usually it's just stems. Are you getting just the bus renders so, or, are you, or all so, tracks? No, no, I want all the tracks. Yeah. Um, but it gets a little complicated because I usually, typically I'm like, send me, make it sound like whatever your last demo is that you were listening to because then I can work off your demo. Um, but when you have complicated busing, it can get a little weird to like, I'm sure you've run into that problem where, okay, you got all these drums running through a bus and then that running through something else. And like, do you solo each one? Then the compression isn't really the same and it's hitting differently, blah, blah, blah. In cases like that, I usually say, all right, send me the bus stem as well so I can hear it and at least try to like, if I need to use it, I can, but usually I'll try to like get it right and, and improve it. Um, and then, yeah, sometimes it's like send your bus effects and... I will, I'll always try to recreate. So if you have delay throws that you really like, I'll usually just keep those as a, an audio thing. But your reverbs, like I may want control over that and like change the reverbs and stuff. So I'll try to, I'll use the buses. Let me listen to what you want your reverb to sound like and I will try to recreate that as best as I can. Uh, and then I'll be able to, uh, you know, I still want control over level and, and amount and, and things like that. So um, that's sort of, diverging from the initial question of like what your my my day looks like but um now my days are entirely varied because i'd say 50% of my time is spent on music and 50% of the time is spent on business and i'd say certainly in the last month probably closer to like 80% on business and 20% on music so um cuz like launching a plugin brand um and, uh, you know, I have Skio Music and I have, you know, an investment portfolio thing and, um, you know, strategizing, like planning what's the next plugin, like the sauce is the first one. Okay, what am I going to do next? And getting the wheels in motion on that. And then at the same time, I'm, I'm doing this entirely on my own. So I didn't partner with a bigger company. I didn't, I just funded it myself. I spent two years finding the right development team and like people who could help me bring this to fruition. I paid them all and I, I, it was my idea and I built it and designed it. And, and, uh, and so now when I have to go and sell it, now I got to be the guy talking to the stores, right? And like talking to the distributors, like, hey, like, 
all right, we're going to run a sale this week and then we're going to do this this week and blah, blah, blah. And like talking to influencers, there's just a lot, a lot to manage. And, and, um, I'm a fairly high functioning individual. And so I've, I've, uh, I've found a way to manage it, but at the end of the day, there's only so many hours in the day. And so this last month, especially with the launch means I have less time to sit and like write a song. What right? made you want to make your own plugin? Um, spite. <laughs> uh, fun, I, I've always wanted to do it. I think it's brand building for me. Um, the intent was not always make a plug-in to try and make as much money as you can. It was more about, I kind of looked at some of those, those other engineers who have like, or producers who have plugins with their name on it and saw what that does to build their brand and build, you know, become recognized. Um, and so I thought like, let's be honest, music is like a young man's game kind of. There's very few people in their, let's say, 50s or, or older who are like actually super relevant in pop music or whatever. And, and that's kind of, I work in pop and EDM and hip hop. So contemporary, what you would hear on the radio. So I sort of thought, all right, Plugins could be an interesting way to build my brand, make it larger, and potentially an avenue for when nobody wants to call me to mix a record anymore. I have another avenue, and I've 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 laid the groundwork while I still am busy working on great projects. Build it now, rather than try to build it later when you're not busy and you just kind of look, you know, like not hot anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I had a call with. A meeting at NAM a few years ago with one of the top plugin manufacturers, their VP, I won't say the name. And I sort of asked, like, hey, like we should do like a line of plugins together, like do a couple things. Like, you know, you got a, a, a lot of like these older generation guys, kids don't really care about them so much. Like, I don't get me wrong, I I CLA is amazing, but I don't know any kids who know them. So and kids are who are making the hottest records right now. Uh, and they they kind of just laughed at me. Yeah. Like, no, we don't have time for that. No, get out of here. So I was like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out on my own then. Yeah. Um, and so, so I jokingly say it, but like spite is a really good motivator sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, for, for me, it was, I, I don't like being told no. I don't like when somebody says you can't do that. Sure, I can. You can't do it. That's like you're you're projecting your fears or your insecurities. Like, and a lot of these plugin companies, yeah. they've gotten a little too big, and they're not nimble enough to really keep up with the trends, keep up innovating with the plugins. And they're kind of some are using their same algorithms and just rehashing them, recombining them. They're not creatives. <laughs> yeah, this is big. This like, is they're not. Talk. Sure, you might make music in your bedroom, and that's fine, but you're not working with the A-level artists. You're not working on the top projects. So I can bring a different, I can bring a different type of experience to the, the thought process in plugin design. Isn't that weird? It's so weird to me that so many instruments and so much software has been built in this island of a factory somewhere, overseas, wherever, by people who aren't really working musicians. And granted, it takes so much work, as you can see, to run the business side. <coughs> There's always been this rub to me of like, well, 
man, a lot of these artist-driven plugins are just so much better. They're simpler. They're easier to use. <clears throat> they're they barely they're need purpose-driven. Yeah. As opposed to, we can do this cool thing, and it's like, yeah, sure, you can, but how often is somebody going to need that weird plug-in effect, the thing that does something wild and crazy? Like, a lot of the, the plugins that ha do, like, crazy effects, I don't use because they're not functional. They're not... Like the 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 frequency that at which you would use it and actually get use out of it and make it onto a record is like so inconsistent. Um, so for me, I the way the, actually the way that I kind of came up with the sauce was, um, all right, what is a process that I would go through my sessions and see like which tracks have seven or eight plugins on it because I mix fairly conservatively in the sense that. If it doesn't need a plugin, I don't slap it on. There's plenty of tracks in the mixes that I get that have nothing on it. They sound perfect as is. So, and that goes back to like not being a gearhead, being an earhead. If you listen, if you actually listen, there's a lot of times you don't need to add stuff. It's almost making it worse. You're just, it's just making it louder. Or... Well, it's, it's like, it's making you feel like you think you're doing something positive and right. you're actually not. Um, and so, because I work that way, I would go through my sessions and see what are the things that have seven or eight plugins? Because I know that I work usually in a fairly conservative manner. So if I had to put seven plugins on it, there's a reason. And clearly I was unable to achieve it with one or two plugins. And so the first thing that I went to was like, I would pull up some BTS sessions and Chainsmoker sessions and, you know, other artists that I was working with. And the vocal chop was always like the... Uh, or the the vocal, the pitched formant shifted weird vocal was always the thing that required a lot of things daisy chain. I was like, I can simplify this so that a new producer can just pull up a preset and get to that sound right away and not have to figure out how to daisy chain seven plugins and make them all work in a in a in a in in a way that's going to be useful for them. So that was sort of the initial concept behind it was, all right, let me make this vocal chop plugin. You can pitch your vocals, you can format shift it, and let me find a way to make it a little bit more interesting. So we added this multi-band layer to it. So you can actually pitch and format shift your low band different from your high band, different from your mid band, have different reverbs on all of them. So now one of the lessons I learned in that is that it's very CPU intensive, so we're, we're working on optimizing it. But um, but that was like a really simple thing and it's usable because I know that I'm using it and I, and I didn't invent that workflow. Like I'm sure I picked up on that from people like yourself and, and other producers and, and engineers. And, and so I know other people will use it. And so I've gotten really positive response, uh, uh, from it because it's so usable. Um, I feel like it's a lot less steps in the sauce than doing Little Alter Boy and then doing Camel Crusher and then doing a reverb and then you're ducking this and pre-delaying that. Like, it's just, just throw it on. Yeah, and I designed, like, the for example, the reverb sounds. I We did convolution, so I created impulse responses for the three reverb sounds. So, um, and they already have, like, there's low-end roll-off. There's the pre-delay that I think is appropriate, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Could you change that? Maybe you want complete flexibility over your reverb? Great. Go do that. Don't use the reverb, add a reverb after it. Uh, but for the purpose of, like, if, I'm, if we're being purposeful, 
the pre-delay on that vocal chop that's sitting in the back of the session, like that's this weird like ambient sound, that is not what's making your record dope or not. So let's just get to the creative side of it, the sound of it. And get, then you're getting the vibe. Get the vibe right. It's so, almost like a bed for the, the main hook, right? Yeah, so, so that, was, that was the plan. And then like the distortion on the sauce, it's not just a distortion. It's like a distortion, a compressor, an EQ. Like there's a bunch of dynamic stuff going on in it. Um, and so it's like really a macro knob with multiple things. So I've actually gotten a ton of feedback. Like, can we just get just the distortion thing on its own because I would use that on everything. And so we're now where I'm sort of in the phase of discussing like, all right, or well, really just thinking like, all right, what should be the next thing I do? Maybe it does make sense to give people the ingredients individually if they want it. Um, did you map it out when you were designing it? Were you, did you just create a custom chain like a rack and you sort of did it piece by piece? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I knew what I wanted because I had, I had, daisy chained all these other things and all these other sessions so I kind of knew what I wanted and then what I had to do is really map out and this was the first thing I designed so we did there was some back and forth and 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 some changes that had to be made after the fact just based on usability it's very hard to write down on a piece of paper what you want your plugin to do especially if it's complicated if it has a bunch of things in it like the sauce if it's just a one knob distortion great it's easy one knob just like figure out the sound and, and that's it. But with this, because there's a lot of things, you have to figure out, well, it's laid out this way, but what's the order of it internally? Just because it's laid out this way, it doesn't mean that um, it goes in that order, like the signal chain flows in the order of the effects that are that are on the sauce. So um, you got to map out what order those things go. Um, obviously, your reverb and your delay have to come at the end because those are time-based things. So um, you're not going to put your reverb first because then you're pitching a reverb thing. Like, that doesn't make sense. So um, so you got to map it out. And then once you map it out, you uh, start designing the sounds. All right, here's what I want the distortion to sound like. And then once you you actually have it in like a GUI or actually before there's even a GUI, you it's like usually just sliders and numbers, right? Just nothing... Uh, creative at all but you as you start like testing it with sounds you're like ah you know this doesn't really work as well as i thought it would um once you pair it all with with everything else because uh, typically you're not getting everything and then and then building the sounds uh, like my developer will build a distortion thing so i'll give a reference i want the distortion to sound like decapitator let's say uh so they'll they'll like put something together and say, all right, here's the settings that you have control over. <clears throat> now you can draw up the settings and, and mix the sound that you want. And then we'll, then we'll lock that preset in. And then that's what is on the knob. So then once you have this like multi distortion thing, you're, you're messing with all these like EQs and filters and, and, you know, different types of distortion and putting it together, and then once you map it out, all right, cool, that's our distortion locked. Do the same for the reverb. Delay's fairly straightforward. It's more just simple math. Um, but like the flanger, the the chorus, um, the the spreader, the, the imager, all of these things required some tweaking. Like, all right, on the spreader, what's going to be the delay time? Well, if we do a longer delay time, it feels wider, but it also feels like a little disconnected. And so, like, 
you do all these like little things, uh, adjusting volumes, volume compensation, things like that. And then uh, in the end, you, you have a product. So it was a ton of back and forth. And uh, I would probably do it a little bit differently on, on the next one. Um, but a good learning experience for sure. Does it sound different once you get the graphics going, once the GUI's in there? Do you find, because I know that has an effect on how you perceive the sound. Uh, well, it didn't sound different, but what it did do was once the GUI's Im implemented, now you have a workflow. Now you can actually see what a person's going to use and how that GUI's design matters a lot. Because if you have buttons and knobs in weird places that are hard to find, like you really want to lay it out in a way that is easy for anybody to understand. And I think we did a really good job at that. Um, but yeah, it, so it doesn't obviously change, physically change the sound, but it changes the way your brain processes what you're doing for right. sure. And like once you actually have have the the unit, you can start messing with it. That's when some of these questions like, eh, this workflow doesn't really work as good as I like. I want to adjust this. I think we should change this. I think we should do that. Um, and so like, for example, w one of the last things that we did was in multiband mode, you know, you turn it on and it goes from orange background to like a gray background. And then the knobs have different colors for each band. And that was the last thing we implemented because we actually had it in multiband mode, but it never changed color. Um, and the problem was nobody understood what multiband mode was doing. Hmm. Nobody got it. It wasn't clear enough. So you had to visually represent that. And that completely changes. If you don't understand what multiband mode is doing and realizing that you have flexibility over all these parameters in each band separately, because every knob looks the same, um, then that means you're not getting the maximum usage out of the product and you're not able to achieve the sounds that I designed it for. Uh, and so we had to go back and redesign the GUI to incorporate these other colors and things that were our visual cues for producers to like just be able to work. So it was an interesting, it really makes me admire a company like, like Apple, their design prowess, because they really find incredible ways to make really complex stuff simple. And that's like a hard thing to do. And I think to bring it back to like music, it's no different than simplicity in production, right? I, we always, I don't know if you feel this, but I feel it all the time. When you're writing a song, there's this constant battle of, did I do enough? Like when I'm writing, when I'm making the beat, did I, is there enough there? And like the band, if you're like, ah, this isn't right, usually our inclination, the, the Band-Aid solution is to add something else. Layer out of fear. Add so, exactly. And, uh, but in reality, if you look at some of the, the songs and beats and tracks that like, cr that crush, it's usually the simpler ones, right? At least that's what I Almost find. always. I don't think there's any overly complex hits. I'm there's, sure there's there are. There's some exceptions. I'm sure there are, but... But it's it's less so. Like if you, they're if anomalies. You, if they yeah, are, yeah, I think, yeah. And so, um, like if you listen to Bad Guy, like Billie Eilish, it's like a really simple beat. Yeah, it's like a bass line and like a driving kick drum, and then like a cool synth in the hook. And there's, I'm sure, some other little sound sprinkle, but nothing too crazy. So, I, I mean, do the, you, is that always a battle for you too when you're sitting and I, writing? And 
It's always, and it's crazy when you hear how many things are easily masking things where the MIDI might be wrong, might have the wrong chords underneath, uh, six versions of the right chords, and you just don't hear it. Yeah. So like even beyond what's perceived, physically stuff's getting masked, you're just, your brain is not absorbing it. So I like, was it Jack Joseph Puig said, he uses the rule of three. Have you heard of this? No, tell me about it. Where you have, your brain can really only process three simultaneous phrases. Okay. And, and you can rotate them out like a radio scanner. Yeah. Um, but you can only you can only really process these distinct elements. So it's you know drums, chord progression, bass, or in maybe the lead uh, swaps with the chord. So it's just bass, drums, vocal. So his his philosophy is three sounds at any given time. Right. And presumably major sounds. Major sounds. So drums is always one. Bass is usually always one. Yeah. Bass bass is tough because it's so such an extension of the chords and yeah. it's modulating the chords. So it's a very loose guideline, but the idea being you're not Keep putting seven or eight elements in there. Yeah. Um, and that there's that, that's actually one of the, one of the things that makes like a great mixer underrated is their ability and producers too. Um, in, in the, in the spirit of mixing and producing being a similar, um, thing. Having a mixer whose ear is able to decipher everything and then get rid of what's unnecessary to me is like such an underrated uh, thing. And it's also a tough thing to actually get across to the client sometimes because, you know, they wrote a song a certain way and you're taking a whole instrument out. Sometimes it requires a client who's maybe uh, more open-minded and, and willing to, uh, you know, accept that. But um, yeah, I mean, I like I remember watching an interview with, uh, it was, I don't know if Kanye did the interview or um, Rick Rubin did, but Rick Rubin's like the, like, king of, like, simplicity in, in music and really, like, dials things back. And I remember he, Kanye, when he finished Yeezus, uh, he brought it to Rick, and then Rick, like, did, he co-produced, I guess, but all he did was just mute shit. All he did was just get rid of stuff. Reduced by Rick Rubin. Reduced. Yeah, is that what it's? Yeah, yeah. is that what his credit was? Reduced by Rick Rubin. So, um, it's it's one of the hardest things to to master, and I don't know if anybody fully masters it. It's one of it's like a constant. I've never not struggled with that. It's always been like, how do you how do you get rid of this? Oh, you get rid of it. Oh, now it doesn't feel as full. Yeah, but yeah. uh, your mind's just, just like tricking you. Really, it feels just as full. It's just different. And I might might have to add like a distortion or something to sort of fill up that bandwidth, yeah. so that a simple sine wave sound is more harmonic and and bigger and occupies more space. But yeah. sometimes working with those treatments, you know, some guys I was talking to, where they mix stuff super loud from the beginning, they don't have their faders tucked down or things trimmed oh, that's way a down. Because then at the end of your mix, you're like, it's it's harder to lower it than it is to raise it. In the end. Yeah, it's funny. For them, I guess for some people, the work process, they know they're already at their ceiling. Yeah. Which is crazy. And it depends how you like to work. But for these guys, it it works for amazing mix downs. Interesting. But, but versus later on trying to reclaim the loudness with EDM um, is can be harder where you've been working very conservatively, making sure things aren't peaking. And then later on, you're like, it's it's still like not hitting that luffs, you know? Yeah. Um, Which is a tough way to work, I, too. I mix everything. Usually when I get a mix and I get stems, the first thing I do, or I'll have my assistant do, is drop everything 10 dB. Yeah. So kick drum, minus 10. 
uh, unless they've already printed, pro some producers know, and they will print things already with plenty of headroom for me. But I want like 10 dB of headroom before I ever touch a mix. Because yeah. then that gives me complete creative freedom to do what I want and not feel like I'm confined and, and in a box. Uh, and then once the mix is done, you know, then you end up throwing ozone and L2 or, or some, some limiting on it. And, uh, and you, you get, I can get the luffs back every time. Like I'm already most of the time mixing above like what's Spotify minus 14 minus luffs. 14, yeah. Yeah. And like I can get mixes to minus nine, minus seven, no problem. And still sound dynamic. You always have that battle of like dynamic versus loud. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, you know, I can usually get things to like sub 10 uh, easily and still maintain like healthy dynamics and, and, and make it nice. But obviously not, I mean, Luffs is a measure of dynamics, right? So it's not, it'll, it's certainly more squashed, um, but not, not in like a detrimental way where it's like, killing your your kick drum or something like that. And I heard something crazy um, like Spotify's not even using luffs. Technically like technically it is around that area, but they're using uh, a different system, a different measurement system. It's actually have they shared dated. that with us. They they've shared it in some ways, but on the site it says like aim for this, you know. And even that's sort of a yeah, a I mean, you know, I it's all it's a constant struggle with clients because the it's less so now because now I've just learned like what clients want and I'll make sure it's loud. I don't send a mix that I basically master all my own mixes in the end. I'll take my limiting off and send it to a mastering engineer. Uh, but while we're doing the back and forth, like if I'm mixing a record of yours, like I'm pre mastering it before you listen to it just because like, I'm just sick of getting the argument like, Oh, it doesn't hit the same way as this other one. It's like, well, Turn the other one down and then tell me if it doesn't hit the same way. Because let ma mastering is going to do a great job of making it loud. Um, but uh, yeah, so I've just found that now it's like you got to make it loud. It's got to slap the way that everything else on Spotify is slapping. So if you're listening to something on Spotify, Spotify does always make it quieter though. Yeah. I noticed that. Do you, what about radio? Like with all those broadcast compressors and stuff, or do you, do you worry about that? No. Or you just sort of do your best and then however it Yeah, gets. I mean, I, I don't ever think about that. Uh, r I mean, rarely do I think about what, oh, how's it going to sound on radio, blah, blah, blah. I mean, every single song has to run through those same compressors. And so... And they're very secretive about their chains for some reason. Yeah, it's like and, and ultimately it's, it's like everything's going to be processed equally. So the goal is make the best, most dynamic, um, most open mix you know i want to make sure that the producer can hear every sound that they put in it because a lot of times i'll get demos and there's like all these amazing sounds that are buried underneath and it's like why why is that not you like why aren't we using that um and so my job is make sure that the producer hears everything they they creatively did um and make it not overly just like if I'm doing distortion, it's got to be creatively done and not, not just because I mixed it too loud or crushed it too much. Um, and yeah, that, that's kind of, and then I don't really think about where it's going to live after. If it lives, if it sounds great in my studio, 
uh, like I'll reference on headphones and I'll reference on like smaller speakers and stuff like that. But if it sounds good there, it should sound good everywhere. I feel like it's so fascinating what translates and even more than what translates and just sounding good. Like these techniques <clears throat> you employ, these plugins you use, can somebody else even hear all that? Cause we hear such a polished detailed version in the studio. It's like, what is going to carry over to that listener? Well, if you break down, if you break it down in a granular way, no listener, even the artist half the time isn't going to know, oh, like, did you make this one change to a compressor or whatever? But the way I describe mixing is like, it's, it's like 10,000 brush strokes. And sure, if you change one, you might not notice the painting is different. But if you change them all, you have a completely different work of art. And so yeah. it's, it's like a, it's heard... The process is is more felt than it's heard, I would say. You know, when you're listening to something that just feels right, you can just tell. Like, it's just everything about it just glues together. It sticks together. When you hear, like, a great, you know, new, like, record that, that dropped, you're like, wow, everything about this is perfect. But then sometimes you hear songs, you don't know what's wrong with it. You're just like, I just don't really, it's not hitting. Even if it, like, yeah, it's got a catchy chorus, it's cool, but I don't know, I just don't like... I mean, maybe for you it's different and, and artists in general is different because like we have an understanding of how to make records and, and what we're doing. But certainly to the layman, like I have friends uh, who aren't in the music industry and they could, if I play them a piece of music, they'll be like, ah, I just don't like it. They, they can't don't, articulate they, they can't, it. They can't yeah. articulate it, but they just know, ah, I just don't like it. Um, whereas in your head, you're like, wait, this is a smash though. Like what's, so then it's a matter of going back and all right, what is the thing that they might not be liking? And a lot of times it's just like, it doesn't, it's not competing with like the other great sounding records. So I don't know. Does it have to have something quirky or something that's just, there's always gonna be some anomaly to the record where it sounds different than everything else. Otherwise it blends in, but but you see people chasing sounds, so yeah. Well, that's what, that's the other like thing that people are always fighting. Like, it's very difficult to tell somebody who's listening to all these other songs every day, like, be original, right? Like, how do you? I mean, wh what does that mean? Every song is inherently original, but I mean, for the most part, uh, but it could be still feel derivative, it, like too derivative for it to be original. Um, that's why I think a song like Closer, for example, um, was so different than what else was happening in, and I'd be curious to get your, your perspective on this as like, as a DJ and producer and somebody who's like in that, that world, like every day. But my, my interpretation of Closer was that it, it was like an EDM formula, but was not an EDM record. If that makes sense. It had the drop, it had the instrumental, it had, but the beat was so much different. The shape of the kick drum was so much different. The it just everything about it was different than what was popular prior to that, which was like very you know major laser up tempo y you know like you know I mean I don't know what else was really popping in that year. It was just like 2016, 2015 like was like. Pitbull stuff yeah. and like snake DJ snake stuff and whatever. It was very like up tempo, whatever. And closer sort of just slowed it down a little bit and but still kept that sort of the EDM drop instrumental formula and, and, and whatnot. And it was kind of the first one that really did that. And then it went so crazy 
that um, it seemed like that song and maybe that with Don't Let Me Down together, like really, and and to a lesser extent, Roses, like helped shape what the next couple of years were going to be for EDM music. I don't know. I mean, how yeah. do you feel in that world? Like you're there every day. Like I feel like it created a lot of... Um, Top liners that sounded very similar, a lot of vocalists. It almost created a, a new vocal sound. Yeah. Which was crazy, where I have to tell people, like, I can't recognize who the singers are anymore on some of the records. So good <laughs> effects and bad effects. But yeah. But it's crazy because I'm used to working with these vocalists like Angela McCluskey and Lissy, where you hear their voice and that timbre and that sawdust, you know immediately who it is. Yeah. So I'm trying to rediscover a little of that with some of the new voices and be like, I need to be able to place that name. Yeah. Otherwise it just blends into the chorus of the other singers. Yeah. Well, with, you know, with Halsey, it wasn't too hard. And obviously right. it was the first song that Drew was ever singing on. So, um, it, you know, it, that in and of itself separated kind of, I mean, cause what other, ED, I guess Calvin was singing on songs, but was anybody else really? Trying to think. I mean, Cascade sang on a couple, but it wasn't really his main thing. Wasn't his main thing, and and even it wasn't even Calvin's main thing. But he had some hits doing it, yeah. right? Like, who, who, and you know, it's your and, voice. I mean, that's that is the beauty of you know. Maybe you're not a born singer, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I feel like there's two categories of singers. There's ones that are anatomically singers. They're born. They're maybe, born it's just, special. The pipes are in there. Beyonce, Adele, like those, yeah, those people. They're just accessing it. They're improving That's not practice. It. That's right. that's like practice, but also just, that's like Kobe level or like NBA, you know, you, you, you have your six foot eight and 240 pounds full of fast switch muscles. Like you're going to be an NBA player yeah. or a fighter yeah. pretty much. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of artists. There's others that is just, yeah, it's cultivated. Um, and maybe it's, you know, like a Neil Young or Bob Dylan where, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe for some people they can't stand that voice, but that was, it's unmistakable. At least it's theirs well, or versus Broadway where it's a little too, I, I can't stand Broadway musical. Broadway. It's yeah. it all, they all try to sound like the same archetype of a voice. Yeah. Disney princess every yeah. time. Um, yeah. Well, I kind of, the, I, I put singers in two categories you have like the stylists michael jackson um like imogen heap like people who like instantly john mayer like instantly you recognize their voice unmistakable whatever i mean take the fame and all that stuff out of it like you know nobody sounded like michael jackson nobody um you know Lana Del Rey to an extent. She's like, I, I, you know, Amy Winehouse. Like, I don't think Lana's the best singer ever, like capability-wise, but she's great and she's original and she's unique and like nothing, um, nobody can try to copy what she's doing. It's like very difficult. She just sounds a certain way. Um, and then you have artists that are just physically gifted, you know, like a Leona Lewis, to me, like she's an incredible singer, but her voice just blends in with everybody. Like I don't know, like there's nothing uniquely original about like Leona's voice. Yeah. It's almost I like think, photorealism in a painting or something. Yeah, there was yeah. It, it, like to me her, the reason why she didn't fully work the way that she everyone thought she was going to was like there was nothing unique about it. Yeah, there's, you're good. You're a very, very, very good singer better than like 99.9% .9 of singers, right? But 
what is the thing that separates you and makes you unique and different? Because if they can see that movie somewhere else, basically, yeah. why why see yeah. it again? Yeah. So what do you think with all these new artists, like you're cultivating talent uh, with writing deals, with the publishing mm-hmm. project you're doing, and you have you have Skio, what what are people, what are the typical mistakes you're seeing being made? And what do you think, how do you think, if they're doing it the right way, what is the right way to do it? Uh, in what capacity? I think in terms of their approach to getting, getting heard. Well, who's and they? Building artists? A fan base. Yeah, artists, artists, producer artists. Um, I don't know. It's so like, I think first and foremost is you have to have great songs. You have to have great songs. Like, well, I don't know. Now, now we can get into the weeds on this. I mean, there's plenty. That's entirely subjective. I understand that. Uh, and there's plenty of artists who are superstars who I don't think have any good songs, who I think everything is trash, but they found an audience. So I think it's a combination of great song, but also being an artist, being a like it requires a, an interesting personality. It requires a level of honesty and vulnerability and and um, authenticity in not just the music, but everything. The way you sit down and conduct an interview matters. Mm-hmm. What your artwork looks like matters. The way you dress matters. What your visuals, your video looks like. What your your visuals on your sh- on the on your tour look like. All of these things matter and contribute. And what I see is a lot of artists like come into the game and think that all they need is a song and that's it. But all that does is make a hit record. But just because you have a hit record, that doesn't mean you're going to have a, you're going to be, have a superstar right. career. They want the silver bullet, but that'll just create more stress probably because you need the follow up to the hit record. You always, you have to be able to follow up and and that's not always an easy thing but if you have cultivated a fan base through through authenticity and honesty in 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 not again not just your music but your product and your product is everything that the public can see hear touch feel uh from the artist if you can cultivate an audience that understands that 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 it resonates with that has an emotional connection to that um then you have a real fan base that will support you with a hit record and something that's not a hit. And that's like the difference in longevity, I think. And it's also one of the hardest things to do because it's easy for an artist to look at music as just music. It's like make a song, whatever. And yeah, you could get lucky and have a couple of great hits. You might be super talented and actually have a, a bunch of like great hits. But at the end of the day, you're 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 selling a, you know, it's not just about the music; it's about everything else. And so, if if the audience doesn't care about you, then it doesn't matter how good your songs are; they're going to stream the song, and as soon as they're bored of it, they're never going to look you up again. And that doesn't make for a like longevity in in your career. So it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to do. And when you're trying to work with a 20 year old artist who I didn't know, I mean, I knew what I wanted to do when I was 20, but going like my brother didn't. And so you're talking to somebody who may still be trying to find themselves. And you know, when you're trying to find yourself, you're, you're usually just thinking of the immediate thing in front of you and you can't really look at 
down the field and what are all the other facets of, of your, your career that are going to impact people. Um, and so that to me is the job of a great producer is to be able to help artists through that. And like, it's not just physically make the record or mix it or produce it or whatever. It's also like, how do you mold this, this person into, uh, somebody that everybody likes and cares about? And I, I think it's very tough to fake that now. Whereas you could, you could kind of fake it back in the day, like before the internet, um, when, not to say these weren't talented artists, but like the Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, like that, the pop boy band, girl singer era. Um, you didn't have, they didn't have to write their own music. They didn't have to do any of that um, because they were all like good looking and talented and could sing and dance and they had great producers and whatever. And you could really like craft and mold uh, a product because also media was, it was just easier to control the narrative. Really hard. Music it's videos. really hard to control yeah. the narrative now, <laughs> like yeah. as hard as you want. Even like you know, Billy got dragged through the mud this week for you know the the comments the about about hip hop or whatever. Oh, you know, and yeah. and it, it's just like that's the nature of if you're being honest and you're talking to your fans or whatever, you're gonna slip up, and and it's very easy to like you know lose something that you spent years building for for like a silly reason so like i i think now artists need to just be honest with their their fans honest with everybody try to not be a dick hopefully because i think that translates really easily on things like social media or or interviews or whatever and when there's that much content going out it's just you're going to make more mistakes do you think that the impact of a pop star or the definition of a pop star is different now because everything's going mass niche almost yeah but you still have the the old the like the old thing still is there too bts yeah. is a perfect example like it's like uh seven member now in the u.s there's always five boys right but a uh, seven member boy band everyone can sing everyone can dance they're all like good looking they you know um and so that that product still works and then in the case of someone like a BTS, when you have like these really compelling, interesting personalities and uh, that's when you get this like insane fan base behind it. And then the same goes for the female pop stars. Like Rihanna's still just as relevant today. She's expanded her business, but then you have Ariana and you got Selena and, you know, Billy to a lesser extent. I don't know if Billy wants to be considered a, <laughs> I don't think she'd appreciate being considered a, you know, a Britney type archetype, uh, pop star, um, you know, cause she does write her own music and, and do all that stuff. So, but at the end of the day, she's a female soloist, right? Making pop music. Yeah. So the sound of pop music changed, but you're the same thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it, to, a to, uh, if you take a step back and look at it, you are, you are the same thing you might write your music and you might think your music has more emotional impact or any of those things. But at the end of the day, you're making pop music and fans are consuming it and you're on the radio. So it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, but now there's way more things like the DJ was never, uh, was never in the late nineties or early two thousands. Like the DJ, was big, not the artist. big DJs were always around, but nobody, at least not in America cared 
I don't want to say nobody cared because there was always like the rave culture and all that sort of stuff. But radio was not playing Tiesto records. Right. Were they? I don't think so. No. Um, there wasn't much dance radio in America at all. The only one was the his remix of Sarah McLachlan that was that was on daytime radio, but that was it for a long period. I think there was, and then maybe you had some of the, the Sandstorms or Blue or but they, yeah, they were more but crossover. Like, but even Sandstorm, yeah. like that was one of those songs that just did something special. But yeah. nobody knew who Darude was. Right. Nobody really knew that that was that, there was song loyalty, but not artist there was song loyalty. loyalty, but not artist loyalty, and that's why I was, going back to what you were saying before, it's really important that artists are like honest and vulnerable, and like and give a piece of themselves in all of their product because that's how you can foster artist loyalty, and that's the thing that's going to keep you around for a long time. If people only care about a song, that's fleeting. Like. We get bored of songs, especially now. There's like new songs on Spotify every every day. There's like a hundred thousand new songs. What I don't know what the number is, it's but it's 60, a lot. Sixty thousand a day, forty to sixty thousand on Spotify a day. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, that's way too much content for any one person to go through. And so the things that are really special are gonna like float to the top. And if there's not a reason for me to go back and listen to more of your music after this one song that I really love. I'm not going to because next week there's going to be another batch of songs that I want to hear and you'll kind of be forgotten. Yeah. So I think more void. than ever now with 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 content, with the amount of content and the availability of content, you have to come up with something unique and original. And that's why I think Billy is somebody who, I keep bringing her up, but she's kind of after the Grammys here and first person of sweeps in a long time. Um, you know, she's she's doing something very unique. Her sound is different than everyone else's sound. She is clearly not being told how to dress and how to talk and what to do and blah, blah, blah. I'm sure she has people around her to advise her and, and help her out, but ultimately it, it feels like it's coming from her, which is important. Home studio, parents' house. Yeah. Parents' house, parents house doing the music with your brother, like... You know, I mean, they're they're clearly very talented, and and not only that, because they didn't take any of that outside influence, I feel like that also helped them create a unique sound that was like unique to them, and worked for them. Um, you know, and the, sort of the big argument this year at the Grammys, at least uh, in my circle, was like Lizzo or Billie Eilish, like who had the better year, and like Lizzo makes amazing music too, um, but. Lizzo's music is a lot more familiar than Billy's. Totally, yeah. I've heard Lizzo's songs before, plenty of times. Now, she does a great rendition of them. They're fantastic songs. They're really catchy, and she there's great songwriting. And and so this is not in any way taking away from what, what Lizzo does, but, uh, but Billy was uniquely different. And so I think that was the the difference maker. I think especially when you're going into award season and stuff like that, those are the things that kind of stand out. Does it ever feel like it's a revolving door? Like Madonna becomes Lady Gaga, and um, you I know, think Weekend that's just influence, becomes, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's just just influence. Like that's like the evolution of the music. Basically. Yeah, that's like yeah. you know, going. I keep going back to basketball reference, references too, but like. Kobe influenced the the players today. Like the players who are entering the NBA today grew up on Kobe, not yeah. Michael Jordan. But 
Kobe grew up on Michael Jordan. So some, so if, and you look, their game is similar. Somebody's going to come in and play the game like Kobe does. And I'm sure there are a bunch of players now who do that. Um, and it's no different in music. Like 100% Gaga is derivative of uh, Madonna. And, you know, I'm sure Madonna pulled some, some, you know, things out from, from the seventies, from Cher and from like artists like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's music's always, always doing that. Yeah. Right. So what's so. next for you? You got the, the sauce is out. The sauce is out. Um, people can check it out. There's a free trial, uh, two week free trial on djswivel.com and pretty much every other store. So if you purchase, if you like getting your stuff from Sweetwater or Plugin Boutique or wherever you can get it, wherever you want, um, uh, more sample packs will come. Uh, definitely more plugins uh, are are on the way. So now I'm like I'm in the stage of like planning. All right, because I have probably. A, a, no less than six or seven ideas of things I want to build, some smaller and simpler and some more grandiose. Uh, and so now it's like figuring that out and budgeting it and, and making that work. Um, have a bunch of new music coming out. I did something on um, Duo's new album that's coming. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, just constantly, just, I'm, I mean, I'm always mixing something new. I think I have a Sweetie record I'm doing today or tomorrow, and, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of on the music side and, and the plug-in side. Those are, those are kind of the two uh, areas that I'm focused on. And then, like, de- developing artists. So I have a, a writer who I signed named Candace Sosa. She's just finished last date of the Armin Van Buren tour this week, and we wrote a song for him. Uh, so developing her and her sound and, and what she does, uh, she co-wrote eight, eight BTS records with me. She's super talented, incredible. You guys should get in. I mean, she's yeah. a beast. Um, and she produces too, which I love. Like she's a female who can do everything. She can record, play, play instruments, play, plays guitar, plays keyboard, um, produces everything, amazing singing voice, writes top line. Like she, she's a one-stop shop. Um, and then, uh, and then this, uh, rapper Aria, who I'm really excited about, and he's got uh, a bunch of great songs that we're just waiting to put out and, um, trying to, you know, figure out what the best way to do that is and, and, and make sure it all works. So yeah, lots of stuff happening and, and, uh, yeah, it'll be, this is going to be an interesting year. It's sort of a transitionary thing. Cause I, I'm still spending a lot of time on music, but now ha- actually being able to put product into a marketplace and see how that sort of a, a new hat that I've never had yeah, to something tangible out there, even though it's software, it's yeah, it's it's thing. tangible and and uh, you know when you're selling music as a pr- as a product, you're you're ultimately you're selling your time, right? Right. Because I can't, you know, I'm I've never been the type to have somebody else mix a record for me, like yeah. ever. Uh, so you know, there's only so many hours in the day. Whereas with, with plugins, it, it allows, it's a whole different sales strategy. It's a whole different marketing strategy. Uh, and so, yeah, trying to just do creative, scale. creative things with that. You can yeah. scale and, and uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be, it's interesting to like build a company, like a legit functioning company that's not just me and like an assistant, for example. So, yeah. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for coming yeah. on. I appreciate you making thanks the for trek out here. Yeah, I great. love the studio in here. I, we got to do some sessions in here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Man. 
All right, so there you go. DJ Swivel, really great interview. Lots of insight into his work process, how he makes his records, how he develops his own line of plugins, how he works with big acts, with big egos, and how you manage that part of the creative process. So lots of insights in there. Uh, I really like how he's very hands-on with his career, and he's very diversified in all these different areas. Definitely take a minute to check out his plugins, Big Distortion Engine, The Sauce, Spread, and there's more even on the way. So thank you so much for tuning in this week. We'll be back again with another episode next week. Much more on the way, so stay tuned. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more.